Hi there, this is Shiv Valley, a show about Sheffield startups, and I'm Dennis bringing you another episode. Shiv Valley, as you all very well know, is a podcast dedicated to Sheffield startup ecosystem, to its brilliant founders, investors, stakeholders, people from startup supporting organizations, and more. The goal of Shiv Valley is to increase the visibility of local ventures and the connectedness within our ecosystem. In episode 18, I spoke with Chris Iveson from Forjo Manufacturing. Forjo are doing what I call democratizing machine monitoring, but I'd rather let you listen to Chris explain it, as he does so very clearly. Forjo was born only 7 to 8 months ago, has already secured funding and is attracting customers with their innovative solution. Chris was very articulate in his responses and after surviving the initial 5 minutes of tech issues, I'd say we had a really nice conversation, which I hope you enjoy as much as I did. It's starting now. So I'm here today with Chris Iveson from Forjo. Hi, Chris. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, very well as well. Just spoke about how the sun is shining really nice. I'm on my weekend actually already. I, I work Sunday to Wednesday, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday off. Feels oh, really okay. nice. Okay. And so thanks a lot for coming on to my podcast. Been a long time coming. Uh, I kind of learned about Forjo probably around November, December. One of the first pot, uh, startups that was actually recommended to me to kind of get in touch with and try uh-huh. to get on my podcast. So uh, much appreciated and looking forward to learn more about it. So before we start talking about Forjo, I want I want to hear more about you. What what did you used to do before before Forjo? Okay, so I graduated university in 2010. Uh, I had a product design degree, uh, an engineering based degree. Um, and I got my first job in Sheffield um, at a company called AS Steel. Um, and I learned a hell of a lot in the short time that I was there. And um, it was very much a design and engineering type role. Um, but I learned also about the commercial aspect. So about things, you know, things like patents um, and that sort of thing. Um, I then uh, left ASL and, and had a few other jobs, all in the kind of design and engineering related fields. Um, and then and eventually I found myself at the AMRC. Um, and at the AMRC, it's a, I, I don't know if you want me to introduce it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard about it a little bit, but uh, it's good for people that haven't heard about it, or at least don't know what it is. Yeah. So the AMRC stands for the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. It's part of the University of Sheffield. That does research in advanced manufacturing industry. So we're talking aerospace, automotive, medical, those types of industries. Um, so I found myself there and lots of people at the AMRC were doing lots of very clever research. Um, I went in as a development engineer within the medical team. Um, but because I learned about patents and I knew a little bit about patents from the past, people would often come to me and say, Chris, I'd like to patent this. Um, and from there, you kind of you start building up business cases around the intellectual property and the technology, because there's no point in patent protecting something without actually having a commercial application for it. And so <clears throat> that became a bigger and bigger piece of my role. Um, and then eventually, when I was at the AMRC, I um, I well I, I went off and did an executive MBA part time, because um, I thought obviously we need to learn about business if we're going to be building business cases. Um, and as I was going through that, I um, bumped into, um, I was introduced to a guy called Robin Hartley. Um, and Robin had come up with a piece of uh, software that was being used to monitor some of the machines at the AMRC and um, to help the researchers at the AMRC with their research, just to help them understand what was going on inside the machines. Um, Robin had quite an entrepreneurial spirit as well. Um, and so 
myself and Robin, well, whenever someone from industry saw Robin's platform, they would commonly say, that's great, can I have it? Um, and so it really gave us an idea that actually there was probably a commercial application there that the industry wanted. And so we both started working together to um, to set about building a business case around this technology. Um, and then in September 2020, so it's kind of a it was a bit of a it was a bit of a COVID business really, because uh, or a bedroom business. You know, we were very much kind of working from home remotely um, to build it up. Um, and in September of 2020, we eventually uh, spun the company out. Very exciting. So we've been going for about seven or eight months now. Um, and um, and yeah, it's, it's an exciting ride. We love it. Taking taking research from, from universities and commercializing it is one of the kind of typical ways to build a startup. But honestly, I don't even know how exactly it happens. So who owns who owns the research when you're part of the AMRC, for example? Was it Robin that owns the research? And how easy is the path to commercializing it? Do you have to share with the university? Of course, I'm not sure how sensitive the information is, but if, if you could just uncover some of the details, how do you spin off uh, research into, into a commercial business? Research that's generated by university funds is owned by the university. Um, and there is typically, well, at the University of Sheffield, um, they have a commercialization team, which is a team that I used to work in. Um, and the commercializations team is to generate impact from that research. Um, now, the different ways that you can generate impact from research, that, well, there's lots of different ways, but two of the common ones are to license um, the intellectual property to um, existing businesses. Um, and the other way is to set up new businesses based around the technology. Um, now, typically the academic or the researcher in Robin's case would um, follow that research out of the university if it's going to be in the case of um, setting up a new company. And that's obviously because you need somebody who's really going to own that, um, uh, you know, uh, own the business really, or own the, um, yeah, the, the, the mission behind the business. So very much when we, when Robin and I started working together, it was very much a case that I was helping Robin to get out of the university um, and to start this business. Now, the more myself and Robin got to know each other, we got on very well and we had quite complementary skill sets. He's more on the techie side, I'm a bit more on the commercial side. Um, but there's also quite a lot of overlap there. Um, and we do have a, a nice little story about that. Our kind of our inception story was uh, we went down to Bristol to meet one of our advisors at the time. Um, and when we got the train back, this is pre-COVID, we got the train back from Bristol um, and uh, we decided to go for a pint at the Sheffield Tap. And that pint ended up being five or six pints of dry port each. Um, and during those discussions, Robin had convinced me to join him. <laughs> um, but I guess to come back to your question. So, um, yeah, when spinning out um, research from the university, the university um, needs to demonstrate to the taxpayer who was effectively given the funding in the first place that they get a return on, on their investment or that the taxpayer gets a return on their invest, investment. Um, and so the university will typically come to an arrangement with um, the entrepreneurs to make sure that they are kind of fairly rewarded for the effort that they've put into helping us get to where we are. Um, and we, there's no way that we will be where we are without help from the university yeah. and without help from the AMRC. So um, it's yeah. a very fair, um, yeah. fair, fair share, I believe. <clears throat> right. I'd love to read the statistics about how many startup partnerships have been formed under the influence of alcohol. That will be very interesting to find out. <laughs> have, you, have you heard that story lots of times? <laughs> not, not, not particularly on my podcast, but 
I've definitely read it at least a couple of times. And I just, because I have experience with, with mates and, you know, when we, when we drink a couple of pints, especially with, uh, with mates who are interested as, as, as I am in startups and business and so on and mm-hmm. so forth, it always leads to, always leads to kind of thinking about ideas, things that we can set up. And I remember I had a friend in Bulgaria. We, we used to talk about it all the time. And uh, he used to say, when you come back to Bulgaria, we're going to sit, we're going to drink. Uh, we have this Bulgarian alcohol called Rakia. It's, it's a killer. It's like 50 degrees. He was like, we're yeah. going to sit, we're going to drink Rakia and we're going to discuss business. And I'm like, mate, if you actually want to do something, we're going to sit, but we're not going to drink Rakia. We'll it's, do it uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, let's, let's move to the next question. And I want to ask you about Forjo now, about the concept of the business. So I checked your website. Honestly, I don't know about uh, a lot about manufacturing and specifically data in manufacturing. So that's yeah. what I want to ask you. What changes do data in manufacturing bring? And what, is, what was exactly the problem that Robin's, that Robin's platform and Forjo, in essence, is trying to solve? Okay, so I'll go with the second part of that first. So the problem that we're trying to solve is productivity. Yeah. So <clears throat> I suppose... Professionally, I've worked in various different design and engineering and manufacturing organizations throughout my career, um, four or five. Um, and I've seen some businesses that have competed based, based on having really, really innovative business models and, and innovative products and really, really slick production systems. Um, and those businesses are able to compete um, by manufacturing in the UK. But the UK, as we know, has quite a high, relatively high wage um, bill per head um, and that means really that the uh, the staff who are employed by these manufacturing companies really have to be as productive as they possibly can um, in order to to keep um, well to, yeah to, to keep competitive now I've worked in other businesses where um, due to cost pressures um, the manufacturing has been shipped out to say the Far East for example mm-hmm. um, and <clears throat> in the early days um, when I was working at some of these businesses, I mean, I, I distinctly remember going around one um, facility that this uh, business that I worked for had, and it, it used to employ 3,000 people in South Yorkshire, and it was a huge factory, um, and they used to do all the manufacturing on site. And in the 90s, all that got shipped off to the Far East, um, and they still had the facility. And it was really sad going around and seeing what had happened really to this, you know, to, to this, to this really, really impressive business. Um, and it was still doing well, but actually it was, it, you know, all the jobs were over in the far East. And so really <clears throat> it's a case of manufacturers in this country have to do as much as they possibly can with the people that they have. And to be honest, it's the same in every country. You know, I've, I've been out to India in the past and um, I remember speaking to, factory owner in India and he said yeah it's all well and good saying that Indian labor is cheap but he says you know um, he says I've got to employ two Indian people for every one Brit and so it's the same problem it's just you know it's still productivity so effectively we really really wanted to focus on how do you maximize the productivity of manufacturers um, in the UK using tech using data Um, and that's really what dropped out from the research that Robin had done um, and I think there's a big need for it in lots of industries. Um, so in terms of actually, you know, what we do, do you, do you want me to go on to that? Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, so <clears throat> we've been referred to as a fitness tracker for manufacturing. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen that in, in yep. some, of the, uh, some of the articles that's been about us. 
So the idea being that, you know, people wear Fitbits. I've actually got a Garmin, but people put Fitbits on their wrist. Um, you got a Garmin as well. Um, and yeah, that collects data from your wrist and you can use that data to help you um, inform, well, to help inform you about things such as, you know, your runs. Um, I played football last night and didn't run very fast, but uh, it, it, I, I learned that because of my Garmin. Um, and so effectively, it's taking data off your wrist and giving you information that you can use to improve your health and your sporting performance. Well, in manufacturing, in a lot of manufacturing industries, they have what's called CNC machines, computer numerical control machines. It's a broad range of machines from lathes to mills to, you know, milling, uh, to machining centers. Lots and lots of different types of machines are, fall under the category of CNC machines. And they can span few thousand pounds up to millions of pounds yeah so really really broad category of machines um and so what we do well and, and these machines are typically utilized quite low because they're in quite flexible manufacturing environments if you're making ten thousand of something then as a manufacturer you, you can afford to spend the time to get really really good at making sure that that you're making them really efficiently mm -hmm. but in a lot of manufacturing industries in the uk um, it's kind of like a large batch might be a 200 off order. Yeah. And they make that 200 off order and then they've got another 20 to make of something else. And then they've got another 40 to make. And so there's a lot of that going on yeah. and that leads to a lot of inefficiency. Um, and so what we do is we um, connect up to the CNC machines and we collect data from the CNC machines um, and we send it up into the cloud. And then we've got a seven stage data or seven layer data analytics platform and that we put the data through. And then via a web browser, we enable manufacturers to, um, to start to see the gaps in their production processes and start to understand how they can close those gaps up. Um, and so that's really in a nutshell, what we offer. Yeah. By the way, did you play football goals last night? No, good win. Oh, fair. I played at goals. We were, we were both were Garmin, both played football last night. This is very ambiguous. <laughs> uh, however, I want to say that this sounds fascinating, honestly, because we started wearing, wearing trackers to kind of measure, measure things that we can't measure without the usage of technology. And now you're making technology to measure technology and to be used in, in manufacturing, which sounds really fascinating. And I want to learn more about it. And thanks for explaining it. I think you're explaining really well. For example, me, as I said, I don't really know a lot about manufacturing. So I kind of understand what you're saying. But I want to learn more about industry for tech. I made that, I made that phrase a couple of times on your website. Yeah. So could you please explain it to a person who is, who is not in manufacturing? Sure, yeah. So, so industry four is the fourth industrial revolution. So the first industrial revolution was the water wheel and steam power. Um, the second one was electricity. Um, the third one was computers and, and then the internet. And then this fourth one is really the new set of technologies that are coming out as a result of um, internet of things, connectability of all sorts of different devices. Um, it tends to comprise lots of different technologies. So you've got things like virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and internet of things we kind of fall into the internet of things category because we're going to be shipping out a, um, a device to customers that they can self-install themselves. Um, so I think it's fair to say that machine monitoring isn't a new concept. 
Yeah, everybody understands that if you monitor something, then you can manage it properly. And if you manage it properly, you can become more productive. Um, and there are machine monitoring platforms that have been around for decades. Yeah. But the key difference between them and us is if a manufacturer wants to monitor their machines with some of the alternative platforms, then they need to typically spend a large investment, um, get the, um, the sales guys in, get the implementation guys in, there's multiple site visits, there's lots of complex networking that these, um, to actually get these machines hooked up. But what we're doing is we're using cloud technologies. Cloud is another industry for technology. Um, and through using the cloud technologies, we are, or we, we're soon to launch, i.e. next month, we're going to be launching um, a completely plug and play device. So we ship it out to customers in the post. They can install it in their machines in literally a matter of minutes. I installed one in one minute yes, uh, last week. Um, and that enables them to get up and running for a very small cost. We're going to be launching it for 179.99. Um, and then there'll be a number of software subscriptions that go alongside um, starting with a completely free offering. Now, the key difference really is that from a manufacturer's perspective, they're not looking at tens of thousands of pounds up front um, and the three month installation process. They're looking at a couple of hundred pounds, fit it. If we see the value, then we'll buy more. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's only through actually being able to use industry four technologies that we can deliver that as a, as a completely new business model. No heavy contracts as well. No, no 12 month for five year contract. This is basically like getting as easy as getting Netflix. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And so, yeah, we offered, we're going to offer different ways to pay. So monthly rolling contracts, if you want an annual contract, fine, you can have a discount. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like you say, similar to Netflix. So you're kind of democratizing machine moni uh, monitoring. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that machine monitoring has been out of reach for a lot of the smaller manufacturers um, because, you know, they, they, they haven't been able to see the value before they invest. Yeah. Um, whereas, like I say, for very little risk and very little effort, we're enabling manufacturers to give it a go. Yeah. Well, from hearing a little bit, from you, I'm kind of starting to realize what you meant when on your website, there's a phrase for you that says that you're motivated to create something from nothing. And I wanted to ask you that question. Now I kind of kind of grasp that idea, but still I want to ask you about that. What, what exactly do you mean to create something from nothing? Does it have something to do with uh, Peter, Peter Thiel's concept well, from zero, zero to one? To be, to be honest, so really creating something out of nothing is fun. It's, it's what I've always been motivated to do. It's um, when I, if you would have asked me my 14 year old self, what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would, I would have said an architect. And it was very much I wanted to create buildings that you could point to and say this, you know, this is what we've made as a team. Yeah. Um, when I got to university or looking at universities, I realized I didn't want to spend seven years at university. So I then pivoted onto product design and engineering. Um, and in my early career, I develop products, like I've, I've designed power tools and I've designed irons and kettles and things like that. And when you see them on the TV or I've designed portable football goals, you know, and so like I went to the park a few weeks ago and I saw one of my goals being used, you know, somebody had bought one and they put it up and that it's just having a little, put, being able to put your mark on, on the world in a very small way. Um, and so I, I guess starting a business is just another step along that, that, that desire to create something. Um, and so that's really what, what gets me out of bed in the morning, I think. 
how those two combine? So obviously you're very creative, like creating things, designing des designing things. How does that resonate with business? Because with business, in a sense, you're at the moment, is it only you and Robin? No, no, there's, um, so well, on Monday, there will be a team of five. Um, yes, and then, so, yeah, so quite yeah. small. Oh, that's a perfect number for a startup. <laughs> it, it, it's only been a couple of months. But what I mean is that eventually you're going to start building up this, this organization. So I guess you're going you're gonna to have to apply the same concepts that you use when you're, when you're designing a, a product to design a team. But how do you feel that the, those two areas, you know, the, the area of the business and the area of, of a product design, uh, how do they intertwine? It's still designing. It's still yeah. problem solving. You know, it's, it's looking at, I've got this challenge, what are the tools that I've got in my arsenal to help solve that problem? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, instead of doing something in 3D CAD, you do it on a spreadsheet. <laughs> but you've still got a challenge and you're still trying to solve it. Um, I guess the difference really with, with the startup world is there's just so much work and yeah. so much, it, it's also varied, um, which is which is great. It's, it's so much fun. It, you know, at no point have I been bored since we launched Forger. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's bringing in, you know, it's bringing in the technical, it's bringing in the market, it's bringing in the finance, it's, it's bringing everything together to create something that works. And, you know, we get things wrong, but you're learning, you're always learning. It's, uh, you and also AutoCAD can throw a temper tantrum if they're not happy with their role or with their position. So, that's yeah. probably going to be challenging. It, it, it's always it with people. I have to tell you, I started start, started my my first graduate job in in January, and it's mm -hmm. it, it, it's in management. And I always assumed because I had a couple of leadership roles in you know, I was like, I'm going to nail the management part. I assumed that the part that I'm going to find difficult is the technical part because I work mm -hmm. in a full human center. But boy, oh boy, is it difficult working with people. Like it's I over under, like I underestimated it so much. But I don't want to like. I'm I'm sure that you're gonna do you, you're gonna do well, and you obviously create so many things. I'm sure that creating guidance, the concept of for Joe is growing. You're not gonna have a problem with it. I want to ask you. Oh, sorry. It's go a very on. good point. I was gonna say it's a very good point that in in all well in most professions, whether it be as an engineer, as a doctor, you know, as a scientist, whatever you are. Quite commonly, you will see that the best engineer, the best doctor, the best scientist will get promoted into management level. And all of a sudden, they're now having to learn from scratch a completely different set of skills. Yep. Um, and uh, that can bring with it some challenges. It um, definitely does. I want to ask you, how do you market something like that? So it's a completely B2B business, uh, uh, of course. So yeah. what, is, what, what, is your, what is your route to market? I would assume you already have a lot of contacts through your position in AMRC and also Robin with his research through the university, a lot of clients, but what is going to be the way forward? So you're absolutely right. The earliest adopters that we started with were contacts and friends. Um, and we haven't exhausted that list yet. We've still got lots more who, uh, who might be interested. Um, but yeah, that's, how, that's very much how it started. Um, we're having some good success on places like LinkedIn. Um, and also we've got some really, really good um, partners in um, basically trade press so there's a few magazines that we work quite closely with um, and um, they uh, very nicely write some nice things about us which leads to some direct leads that come in through our website um, now we have a digital marketing manager who started on Monday um, and um, he's going to be exploring how we do it all in a more scalable way 
Um, yep. Trying to find out where a lot of these, uh, a lot, well, where our market resides online. Um, obviously, there's LinkedIn and there's Twitter. They're the two key places, really, that manufacturers tend to live. Um, but there's, there'll be lots more areas as well. For sure. And I think the fact that it's so easy to install and basically you kind of have like a free trial version because 179, you said it's like one of the, of the price models you have. That's, that's how much a machine link costs. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And to be fair, like, again, I'm, I'm not in manufacturing, but 179 months for, uh, for a machine monitoring tool, which you can, if, if it doesn't work well for you, you can just stop paying for it just sounds like a no brainer. Uh, yeah, so, so that's a one-off cost, yeah. and then there's a software subscription. The first one starts with, uh, it's completely free, it's called Forge or Lite, um, and it enables manufacturers to, um, they can buy up to three machine links, try it out on three machines, and then the Lite software offering is a little bit restricted in that, you know, you've got only a certain amount of data that you can see. Yeah. Um, and, then, um, and then from there, they can drop onto the Pro offering, which is $59.99 per machine per month. Um, if they pay anything up front. Um, and then there's one or two optional extras that people can have. Um, so for example, we we offer, so obviously we tell manufacturers when, what their machines are doing, um, when they're being productive, when they're not being productive. Typically, um, we see that CNC machines are utilized less than, well, we say less than 30%, but sometimes it can be five, six, 7% of, of, of time. And that's often quite shocking and to the manufacturer, because a lot of manufacturers say, we always feel like we're busy. But then when we see the data, you know, there's the old saying in manufacturing, there's the saying, which is if the spindle's turning, then you're earning. Cause it's actually being able to cut metal. That's how, they, how, how these guys make their money. Yeah. And so they always feel really busy. They see the data. They're often very shocked at how low the utilization figures are. And the next obvious question is, is well, why is it so low? And so we put tablet computers next to each connected machine. Um, and the tablet computers there, they, they have knowledge of what the machine's doing. And whenever a machine stops being productive for a period of 10 minutes, then um, it asks the operator, can you please tell me why? And the operator can just got a, a list of buttons. They can just hit a button. And then um, we collect all of those reasons for downtime. And then the manufacturer can very easily on our system just go, right, ha ha what, are my, what is my top reason for, for lost productivity? And then that points them towards being able to solve those problems. Right. Where do you stand on your question? <laughs> what was your question? No. <laughs> I don't know, mate. Questions are morphing, uh, but uh, I, I understood what you said. And uh, I want to ask you what's your position on sustainability. So I guess it is related to productivity and making machines more productive means that ultimately resources will be saved in a on, set on like a higher level. But yeah. uh, do you, do you have a position on sustainability? And if you do, could you get a little bit more in depth uh, to that? So you are right that productivity and sustainability are linked. Yes. Um, you know, if you can make a part in half the time, yes. then you're saving energy fundamentally. You know, we don't offer manufacturers um, um, ways to improve their quality at the moment. Um, it's all very much productivity focused. Yes. But given that our machine link devices they monitor energy effectively mm -hmm. um and those basically we can then split the energy usage by each machine into productive energy usage and non-productive energy usage so for example we see in some manufacturers that the machines will just be left on all night and they're not oh. being run and so we 
it's not something that we offer yet, but it's in it's in the roadmap as a, a small feature that we want to develop. But it's effectively being able to show the manufacturer you have spent this much money per month, for example, across your machines on um, non-productive energy usage. So if you focused on switching your machines off at night, mm-hmm. for example, then you might be able to save hundreds of pounds, maybe. You know, um, that's really what we're focused. Well, what what we would like to focus on in the in the yeah. short term. Um, yeah. So that really, from a from a, a sustainability and an energy perspective, that's where we're going. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will be surprised how such a small thing like not turning off your machines when they're not being used can make massive difference. And it's something that honestly, many, many co- companies, manufacturers, fulfillment centers and so on and so forth don't do like the fulfillment center where I work currently, mm-hmm. we're not switching off the conveyor even after we've stopped uh, processing, processing units. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we currently have a sustainability initiative and we're going to start doing that because it's really that's like the embodiment of waste of energy. Absolutely, absolutely. And if everyone did it, like as in every company, every person, yep, then it makes a huge difference. Definitely. What are some current manufacturing trends that you identify? So the key one really is is around this industry four stuff. Yep. Yep. So, you know, we put it in our pitch deck when we're raising money. 87% of manufacturers from small to large manufacturers understand that they need to adopt digital technologies to prosper. Now, the challenge that they've got, particularly the smaller ones, is they don't know how to do it. Um, there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of buzzwords around Industry 4 and augmented reality and virtual reality. And a lot of the SMEs are looking at this and going, but that doesn't apply to me. I make stuff. Why do I need augmented reality? And so really, where as Forgeor, we're trying to enable manufacturers to access Industry 4 tech in as quick as as easily and as inexpensively as possible right um, uh, chris do you want to move to the five questions that i ask all of my guests at the end of each episode yes that sounds good great so the first question is about a book could you recommend one two ten as many as you want to future founders or founders that you think they should read so i've got two okay i remember it was a long time ago now, but I remember reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, which is probably one that you've heard many, many times. Um, but that very much, I think there's a few contentious um, contentious points in there, but it, re- it did really help me to, um, to start to understand the difference between the assets and the liabilities in my life and to organize my own personal finances in a way that, that enabled me to, um, I guess, put myself in a position where I could launch a business, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so that's one. The second one is is more about actually when you've got a disruptive technology and you want to become founder and it's crossing the chasm. Um, crossing so, the what, sorry? Crossing the chasm. Oh. Uh, do you know that book? No, I haven't heard of this one. Okay, so crossing the chasm is um, it's basically when you've got a disruptive technology and um, it's looking at um, the different types of customers that you have uh, in front of you and um, being able to categorize them and being able to understand what their priorities are when they're looking at your technology. So you start off with kind of, you know, innovators, the, the kind of tech enthusiasts who are really, really interested in just new tech for the sake of new tech. Yeah. Um, now they might love the tech and they might spend a lot of, they might be really enthusiastic and spend a lot of your time telling you exactly what they want, but they might not necessarily, well, there's not many of them 
and they might not necessarily have the purchasing power to to go ahead and, and to buy on mass. So, but but they're great, and they they you know they do a really really great job of um, of helping you get the first step in actually proving your tech out. You then get into um, early adopters, um, who are again they're they're kind of interested. They they like it. They're starting to see some benefits from your tech, um, but then from there you get into the early early majority. Um, and that's where really your tech starts to take off. So these are the people who, you know, at that point you've proven your tech's robust, you've proven it's secure and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, and then you get late, late majority and then laggards. And effectively that's, um, it's really helped us to understand various different things when we've been on our journey. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't want to bore you. <laughs> no, 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 nonsense. Yeah, and that's, that's going into my day. That sounds like a really interesting. And to be fair, like I rarely hear books that I haven't read on the podcast because I do have I, I have read quite a lot of books that are that are startup essentials. Mm-hmm. But this one this one is new so uh, I'll definitely give it a read. I'm currently reading the Innovator's Dilemma uh, by uh, I nearly said that one. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> I nearly said that one. Oh yeah well it's it's definitely a classic and it's definitely a good one book that you can learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. My second question is why the name Forjo? So picking a name for your business is really hard. I guess you've probably heard that before. Forge was actually our third name that we came up with. So when we first started, we thought we'd, we were going to be Make Smart, and we sat with that for a few months. And then we went on to boost manufacturing technologies because that's effectively what we're doing. We're boosting manufacturing using technology. Um, uh, we uh, ran into a trademark issue with that one, so we we quickly uh, went away from that. Yep. Um, Forge, so I don't know if you're familiar with... Um, um, well, are you familiar with a chuck in manufacturing? No. So a chuck is basically, if you want to hold something out of, mm-hmm. say, say if I was going to hold a workpiece, then usually you'd have these these um, jaws of the chuck. Okay. And there's typically three of them that come around and grip a part. Okay. Um, now, you can also have a four-jaw chuck if you want to hold a square part. And um, so basically we liked four-jaw because A, it rooted us in manufacturing. So if you're from manufacturing, it's familiar to you, yep. um, but it also get, gives us the the opportunity to pivot. So it's not kind of like we are, you know, m- machine monitoring, you know, limited. Um, it's you know, forge of manufacturing analytics. It just enables us to pivot as much, you know, as much as we feel like we would need to. Um, also, frankly, trademark was available and the domain name was available, <laughs> um, and so yeah, that's why we went with forge of. So the first idea was make smart. Make smart, yeah. It's for those for me way better made. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I think I think you I think you made the right choice. For cho- and for example, see I didn't know it, but uh, for me the name of a business when you maybe if, if you're out of manufacturing and you don't know it, but then when you research it and you see that there is a there is a meaning behind it, that mm-hmm. makes the name of a business better. Because yes, I didn't know what it is. For Joe sounds sounds cool. But I didn't know what it is, but it's cool to understand that it's actually something that comes from manufacturing. So I think way better than than, than make smart. Yeah. What's one place in Sheffield that you would recommend for everyone to visit? So if you're into if you're into manufacturing, I've got two places. The first one is the Kellam Island Museum, because that really gives a really good overview of where manufacturing in Sheffield has come from. Um, and then the second one, looking forwards, I'd say if you can go and visit the AMRC because that really shows where manufacturing is headed. Is it, I guess, post-COVID probably because at the moment the I assume there's restrictions, but can you just go to the AMRC and 
kind of take a look around and uh, talk to people or is it a restricted access? They're always having tours. <laughs> they, they haven't got they haven't got a complete open door policy. You yeah. can't just t- turn up and, uh, and 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 yeah. But they're always having tours. Okay. Um, and if anyone's really really interested in going, then uh, give me a shout, and I'm sure I can make you an introduction to somebody. <laughs> oh. uh, I would love to because the things that I've heard about <clears throat> the things that I've heard about AMRC and the things that I've that I've seen from it mm-hmm. looks amazing, and so I would I would definitely love to visit sometime. Okay. Cool. My first question is a little bit more philosophical. It's basically, if you had 15 minutes with your 20-year-old self, what would you tell him? So when I left university, I was 21, 22, and I thought I was done with learning at that point. It was, uh, you know, I was sick of the university life and I wanted to, you know, get my first job and start earning some money and start achieving stuff. Um, the key thing really is that you're always learning. You never stop learning. Um, and you learn the most off the people that are around you who are more experienced and, uh, and frankly better than you at certain things. Um, and so really the advice would be just don't stop learning. Um, and I never thought I'd go back to university and do another degree. Um, but kind of, what, seven years on, um, I decided to go and do a master's. Uh, you know, that's where I did my MBA. And so it's just always learn. I learn every day from people, clever people like Robin. Um, but also we've got a really, really good team of advisors around us who, who just help us so much. And so keep learning. That's it, really. And before I move to the last question, I actually want to ask you about the fact that you're based in Sheffield. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you said that you've raised some money. So could you, could you please let us know a little bit more about uh, Forjo's kind of relationship and, uh, and the fact that you're in Sheffield and the ecosystem here and also about your, your, fundraising, uh, your fundraising life until mm-hmm. now? Uh, what in detail? So our investment. So we, we secured investment. So we, we we incorporated. In fact, we were pitching for investment when the business was incorporated. Eighth of September, we were stood actually in the room just next door. We didn't have any desks or anything, and we were pitching to North Invest at that point. Um, and um, at the same time, I got an email saying, "Congratulations, you now have a business," which is great. Um, so between September and Christmas, we were very much hunting for our seed round. Um, and the seed round closed and the money landed on Christmas Eve, which was great. Um, and the round was comprised of um, a series of angel investors plus a venture capitalist. Um, now, what I'd say really is that COVID helped us with the investment round. Um, it hinders in, in many ways, but from an investment perspective, investors realized that they were going to have to invest in businesses that they'd never actually met face to face. They'd never shaken their hands before. Um, and so that opened up the, um, the geographical area that we were able to, um, to, to get investment from. And actually we ended up going with the London investment firm, um, which I don't think we would have done without COVID. I think we'd have been stuck to, um, ones that were more local to Sheffield. Um, I don't know. Is that what you want to know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, in, in terms of fundraising, definitely. But could you tell us with like one or two sentences, how do you find the business ecosystem in Sheffield in terms of, you said that basically you did your degree in uh, exec, executive MBA, you said, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you weren't new to business, but still you said you have a couple of advisors. So if you could just tell us one or two sentences about uh, Sheffield's business ecosystem. Yeah, so there's quite a few startups. I'm sure you probably know most of them. Um, and um, And... 
I'm, well, we, we are friends with uh, a, a good few of them, actually. Um, and actually, one or two of them we're working very well with um, to help us to get to where we want to and obviously to help them as well. Um, and so, obviously, coming out of the university with my commercialization manager's hat on, um, I want to see more and more businesses or startups in Sheffield. Um, I want to be um, see, I want to see Sheffield um, develop its entrepreneurial ecosystem um, to... I guess get closer to the likes of Bristol. Bristol's got quite a strong entrepreneurial um, uh, culture, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and they're a little bit more advanced than we are up here in Sheffield at the moment. But but there is quite a lot going on, and certainly, um, you know, I don't want to just talk about universities, but but the commercialization team up at up at the University of Sheffield are really really starting to um, to um, have some really good good success stories with the businesses that they're managing to spin out. Yeah, better things are coming. I'm sure the the city is on the rise. Yeah, and there's as you're saying, there's a lot more and more businesses popping up. My last question is about one big, hairy, and audacious goal for Forja. What is it? We want to raise the productivity of UK manufacturing by five percent. Wow, that is the embodiment of big, hairy, and audacious goal. I love it, Chris. It. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Denzel. I think I made it very clear that I know nothing about manufacturing, but I certainly know that Forjo is positioned for success with a great concept and great founders behind it. This episode reminded me why I started doing this podcast. I just really enjoyed talking about new businesses and hearing why these people decide to create something from nothing. It's something that fascinates me, and all of it happening in our city makes me really positive about the future of Sheffield. There will be a little wider gap between this and next episode. It will come out next Friday, which is April 30th. That's 10 days from now, and really is because I found myself struggling to edit the previous few episodes on time, putting quite challenging deadlines to myself and then willing to compromise quality for the sake of publishing on time, which I definitely don't want to do. In the meantime, please subscribe wherever you're listening to or to my Twitter page. Handle is at ValleyShiv. Also connect with me on LinkedIn to never miss an episode and check the official Shiv Valley website. Show the podcast to a friend if you're really enjoying it. That always helps. Shiv Valley is supported by Sheffield Technology Parks, one of the integral parts of our ecosystem. I'm massively grateful for their help in publishing episodes. I wish you all a great day and until next time.